Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 32. And remember last week, if you were here... We're looking at Jacob and kind of all of his exploits. Uh, we really looked at Jacob in some sense for the last two weeks. And the series, Hiding in Christ, um, we've said a lot, you know, when there's hardship, when there's pain, when there's suffering, when there's shame, we look for somewhere to hide. Uh, but there's also a sense in just when we're bored. I mean, sometimes there doesn't have to be anything devastating in your life. It can just be a sense of boredom. And I just, I want happiness. I want joy, which is not bad. Human beings are created to have joy. And if you're not finding joy in the proper place, you will always look for it in an improper place. Which really is what's an improper place. Any secondary thing that you try to find joy in turns into an improper thing when you try to put that value on it. Make sense? Okay. I, I remember this is, I wish this was a made-up story, but it's not. It's a true story. It's been years ago. There was a fraternity guy at Sanford that I was trying to share the gospel with. And he played football, and he had gotten hurt, so he couldn't play football anymore. And in some sense, I mean, this guy had grown up, I think, somewhere in Tennessee, and so he, he, he had a lot of Christian lingo, right? So he's like, I really was trying to find, you know, my satisfaction in being this great college athlete, and then that didn't work. So I started dating this girl, and it was wonderful. I thought she was the love of my life. We're going to get married. And then she broke my heart and cheated on me and dumped me, and that didn't work. So then I got really into all these different kind of exotic drugs, and, uh, you know, that was kind of fun for a while, and that didn't work, and... Then he's like, I was feeling better, so he got into jujitsu or some kind of, I don't know, you know, other kind of athletic endeavor, and he got hurt again. He's like, so now, you know, and I was thinking, I mean, he knows I'm a minister, that he's about to say, now I'm really reading the Bible and trying. He said, now I've really gotten into horse betting. And, it, it, you know, it really was humorous because I was like, horse betting? That, that, number one, I guess maybe he was from Kentucky or something, right? But I was like, well, why do you think, you know, football didn't do it. Sex didn't do it. Drugs didn't do it. MMA fighting didn't do it. But horse betting might be the thing. And that sounds a lot like Jacob, right? If I can just get the birthright, if I can just get the blessing, if I can just get the girl, if I can just have the kids, if I can just get the wealth, and it's never enough. Now, in a sense, Jacob was a self-made man. He's coming. We're picking up basically 20 years later after he'd left home. He's coming home. Uh, he has two wives, two maidservants, a bunch of kids. That was a big deal back then. He has a bunch of wealth as far as in his cattle and his possessions. He has become a self-made man. And he's coming home to where, in a sense, he still has the blessing and birthright. He's supposed to be king of this land, so to speak. But he's also in dire straits because Laban, his father-in-law, doesn't like the way he left. He left in kind of a deceptive way. We didn't read chapter 31, but that's what we're skipping over. So in a sense, he's between a rock and a hard place. Laban doesn't like him very much at home, but he's coming back home. And do you remember, you might have to rewind in your mind two weeks ago, or you just know the Bible story. When he left town, what was it that Esau was saying about him before he left? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wait till Dad's dead and grieve Dad, and then I'm going to kill you. So, <laughs> not looking forward to a very great reception coming home. Okay, now... If we're really paying attention, and I hope we are, there ought to be some sense of self-awareness in our hearts in Jacob or even the goofy fraternity guy I was just telling you about. right? 
we probably do it in a little bit more domesticated, sophisticated way, right? If I could just get the right career, if I could just get the right graduate degree, if I could just get the right title, if I could just get the right circle of friends, if I could just become an officer in the church, if I could just reach the certain level of wealth or have the certain vacation or the certain car or whatever, and we're not dumb enough to say it out loud like the fraternity guy at Sanford, right? We more keep it to ourselves, though. I really think if I got this, I'd be happy. And then you keep getting it. And how long does the satisfaction last? Maybe five seconds at best, right? It's like when you can see your breath outside and you try to grab it before you get it, it's gone. So let's look at Jacob, Genesis chapter 32, and pick up in verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob. So look at the humility, right? Trying to appease him. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Now, what do you think he's trying to do there? In a sense, he's trying to say, Look, I am a self-made man. I became independently wealthy, so all that stuff about the blessing and the birthright and the land, forget about it. I got all the money I need. I don't need that anymore. Let's be friends. Verse 6. The messenger returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks, the herds, and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. I remember hearing Reverend Barker uh, teach on this passage one time. He says, you know, he goes, he sends the messenger, here comes Esau with 400 armed men, and he didn't think he was coming to wish, wish him happy birthday, right? I mean, almost certainly the, the, the correct assumption seems to be he's coming to make good on his threat 20 years ago. He's still angry, he's still hurt, and I'm about to get wiped out. So Jacob starts scheming, devising. Well, at least maybe if I split the camps, half of us can get away. Now, how's he going to try to handle this? His first attempt is going to be through prayer, which, when in doubt, that's a pretty good answer. So let's look at his prayer, starting in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am worthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Excuse me. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear that he will come and attack me and the mothers and the children for you said. I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now, let's let's do a little bit of group discussion, evaluate this prayer. What's good about this prayer? And this is not a trick question. There's a lot that's good about this prayer. What would you say is good and positive about this prayer? He's remembering the things God did for him. Okay, he, he's remembering the past blessings and he's giving God thanks and praise. I mean, that, that's a great thing to do in prayer. What else? He has a humble attitude. There's, there's, there seems to be some genuine humility. I didn't deserve all this. You know, I, I really am unworthy. It's good. What else? Anything else? He's making an appeal. Say it louder. He's making an appeal. Okay, he's making an appeal. I mean, that's what prayer is supposed to be. Hey, I'm in trouble. I need help. He's being very honest, right? I don't want to die. Help me. I mean, that's, that's a good thing to do in prayer. Ask. Well, in a specific one, an appeal to the promise that God has made. He, he also, in a sense, is quoting God's word back to God. 
You know, Charles Spurgeon said when you pray and you quote God's word back to him, that's, that's like taking a blank check that God's already signed. And just keep your promise. That's a great way to pray. This is, this is a great prayer. But do you notice anything that maybe is a little off or a little concerning about it? He doesn't acknowledge God as his God. There you go. It, it, there, he, it's still a little impersonal. You're not my God. You're the God of my daddy. You're the God of my granddaddy. I believe you're real. I mean, I, there's another college guy I'm working with right now who might be a believer, right? It's hard to tell sometimes. But he said, I believe, I believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus, blah, 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 blah. But I don't really feel like I have a personal relationship with God. He's like, I believe God does do that. I believe other people have a personal relationship with God. I just, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel personal with God. You ever felt that way? And that seems to be what's going on with Jacob. You know, um, prayer is one of the most important things we do. I mean, when we're in trouble, when we're fearful, when we're dealing with shame or hardship or boredom, whatever, prayer is one of the best things we can do. But guys, here's the problem. When we have grown up in a good, godly, not perfect, but a good, godly family like Jacob, we can learn to go through the motions of praying without really praying. Right? A lot of external trappings of saying and doing the right ceremonial stuff, coming to church, going through the motions, but not really connecting with the Lord. Make sense? Right? I mean, just have you ever had a time in your life where you prayed? And maybe you were in some public setting, so you prayed out loud. Even as you're saying a lot of the right words, maybe you're even quoting verses out loud as you pray, right? Because that's a good thing to do in public prayer. There's some part of the back of your mind thinking, I don't really mean this. I'm not even sure I believe this. Maybe I believe it, but I certainly don't feel the reality of it. Unfortunately, we're experts at this. So much of our culture pushes us towards this, right? Fake it till you make it. Now, in some sense, the prayer doesn't work. What I mean, he, he doesn't come away with a sense of God heard me and I'm going to be okay. How do I know? Because look at what he does next. He starts sending out presents again. Verse 13. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you you shall say, these belong to your servant. Again, there's the humility, seeming at least. Jacob, it is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Okay? Um, now he arose the same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and he crossed the ford of the Jebek. What's he doing? I mean, 550 gifts. Does this not seem a little excessive? It reminds me of when he goes to Laban and says, Seven years I'll work. That, I mean, it was three to four times the normal bride price. He's desperate. He, he doesn't have faith that God's going to come through. He's still trying to be the schemer, the manipulator, figure this way out. Maybe if I can throw enough wealth that Esau, Esau let me off the hook. 
Now, is it wrong to give somebody a present? Of course not. And this, guys, this is a very important principle in the Christian life, but it's a little nuanced and we can miss it sometimes. We have a part to play in life, right? God has given you a brain and He wants you to use it. There's a right way to interact with people and try to fix solutions and everything, right? If you show up at work tomorrow and your boss comes to you and says, hey, I need you to work on this, and you're like, I'm not going to work on that. I'm a solid Christian. I'm against works. I'm just going to pray. You probably get fired. You try that once or twice, right? Even if your boss is a devout Christian. I'm not paying you to pray. I'm paying you to work. God's not against work. God's against trusting in our own works. God's against trusting in our own efforts. I was talking to some friends a couple of years ago, uh, and they had a very, very, very difficult child. And as we were talking to them, uh, the wife especially was talking about all the different strategies they tried and had been trying, and just nothing seemed to be working. And one of the things that my wife and I kind of asked them, well, are, are you really praying about it? In a sense, are you really casting your anxieties on the Lord? Are you giving this to the Lord? And I, yeah, we're praying, but... And it was kind of right back into the strategies. And, and this is... And, and even at one point, she said something to the effect of, well, I try my best, I plan my best, and then if what I do doesn't work, then I really pray about it. Okay, well, maybe you should flip the order. Because I, I think, as we talked more to this woman, here's what came out. Yeah, I'm praying, but at the end of the day, I'm not really expecting God to show up and do anything. I'm checking the box of, I'm a Christian woman, so I pray. But really what I'm doing is I'm working my tail off and trying to strategize to fix this thing. The burden of responsibility was still on her back. And it was crushing her. Does that make sense? There's some old Puritan that said, it's hard to perform all righteousness and yet trust in none. I mean, the Bible is very serious about obedience. And grace is not anti-obedience. But the point is, I need to be radically serious about obedience, but then I don't trust in my obedience. I don't hope in my obedience. I do my best, but then I say, God, it's all in your hands. And that's, that's a really hard dynamic and balance to live in. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to plan hard. I'm going to think hard. I'm going to serve. I'm going to strategize. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to hope in my plans at all. I'm going to cast all my anxieties on the Lord. I'm going to look to Him. I'm going to hope in Him. At this point, that's not what Jacob is doing. He's still overwhelmed. He still feels like I'm ultimately responsible to fix this thing. In some sense, he's still trying to hide in and hope in his own efforts. My own efforts can save me. Just pause for a second and think about where you might be doing that today in your life and think about how crushing and overwhelming it is. When, when my ultimate hope is I've got to come through. I've got to be a perfectionist. I gotta fix this. I gotta figure this out. It's debilitating. Now, I gotta obey and then leave the results in God's hands. Obedience is up to me, results are up to God. Now he's gonna pray again, but this is gonna be a different kind of prayer. We might call it prevailing prayer. So look again. Verse 23. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Now just pause for a second. For some reason, he wanted to get alone. We don't know for sure why. Maybe he just needed time to think. Maybe he's stressed and overwhelmed. You ever had a day like that? You come home from work and spouse and kids, and you're like, just don't talk. I just need to be, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with life. 
I need some time alone. Or maybe he, he realizes, I've got to pray again. We're not sure. But verse 24 is a very mysterious verse, right? It's one sentence, but look at it. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So right there, there's something mysterious. He's all alone, and yet there's a man he's wrestling with. So that ought to be a cue. It's like, this is not a normal man. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So it's an all-night wrestling match. Just imagine how exhausting that would be. You ever been in a real wrestling match? I mean, after five minutes, you feel like you want to die. And this is all night. And then this man he's wrestling with, I mean, the idea is it's the lightest touch. He kind of tapped him on his hip joint, and it threw the whole hip out of joint. Here's another sign. This is not a normal man that he's wrestling with. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And just pause again. At the beginning of this chapter, and really all through this chapter, so 25 verses up until now, if you had to boil it down, what was it that Jacob was really looking for, asking for, trying to gain? What, what was the one thing he really wanted in this chapter? Is that? Wealth and protection. Okay, wealth, protection, physical safety. I don't want to get killed. I don't want to get hurt. And now he's wrestling with some seeming supernatural being that just with the lightest touch of his finger can rip your whole leg out of joint. When that supernatural being says to you, let go of me. And the main thing you want in life is physical protection. What do you do? Yes, sir. But here's the beauty, guys, of what's happened. In the wrestling match, which is really a picture of prayer, something has shifted in Jacob's heart. And he started to realize, even, guys, in some sense, the breakthrough is starting to occur. He starts to realize, even if I get the physical safety that I was praying for and working for, it won't satisfy the depths of my heart. That's not the best thing. That's not the deepest thing. That's not the thing that my soul is really longing for. I need something more. And so he says, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I mean, in some sense, ever since Jacob was a little boy, he'd been looking for a blessing. He'd been looking for the love of his father, the smile of a father, the blessing of a father. And even when he got it, it didn't really do it for him. Because what we're always longing for is something between us and God. Most of you, I don't know at all, you know. I don't know if I know any of you well enough to know what's the deepest struggle going on in your life right now. But I know this. Whatever it is, is the deep. if you say, well, it's something in my marriage, something in my parenting, something in my work, something with my finances, something with my church, something with my school, it's always between you and God. Those issues are always symptomatic of something God is trying to do in you. The deepest issue is always about you and your sin and God. I'm not saying the other things don't matter. But I'm saying if you don't fix the vertical thing first, all your effort at fixing the horizontal thing will be a complete and utter waste of time in the long run. Because even if you get what you want, it won't satisfy the depths of your soul. I had a friend. I've actually had two different friends in this situation. Very interesting. That uh, a job you know, that they thought they should have gotten. They were passed over and somebody else got it. And there was anger and there was frustration. 
okay, especially at the boss that overlooked them. But as they kind of wrestled and started, tried to critique and give feedback and everything, it was like, listen, I, maybe the boss did make a mistake. Maybe there is some legitimate criticism you should give there. But the deeper thing is, what's going on in your heart between God who's sovereign? And I had another friend. This is very, this is, uh, I'll give you a little bit more specific detail on this because this is in another state, another church, another denomination. I don't think there's any way in here that anybody will know the people I'm talking about. But there was a guy... He's on staff with Campus Outreach at a very large church like a Briarwood. And he's been doing his seminary, really smart guy. And he came, he said, I'd really like to be ordained. I'd like to become an ordained pastor. And the first answer he got back was, no, we don't have any, we don't have any openings for uh, pastoral roles. Sorry, no chance of you being ordained in the next five years. Now, he was not very happy with that answer. And there was frustration and anger. And, blah, blah. and finally, his wife said to him in, in, in with a lot of humility, but a lot of wisdom and courage, she said, you know ultimately it was God that said no. He didn't like that answer very much at first. And then he thought about it with all of his great seminary learning. It's like, that's true. If we really believe God's sovereign, in some sense, God told me no. Even if the, even if the human beings that said no were in sin and saying no, God still in His sovereignty said no, and i got to wrestle with God. You understand what I'm saying? The greatest wrestling match in your life is always between you and God. And one of Satan's great deceptions is luring us into all these secondary battles. I'm wrestling with my wife. I'm wrestling with my kids. I'm wrestling with my boss. And it's like you're focused on the wrong wrestling match. The right wrestling match is always between you and God. Okay. Now, look at how God is going to bring this wrestling match to a close. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Verse 27. Now remember, when God asks for information, he's never a detective trying to solve a crime or mystery. It's not like God's like, tell me who I'm wrestling with again, I forgot. (laughs) What's going on here? This is very much like Genesis chapter 3 when God comes into the garden and says, hey Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? It's like when you come downstairs after you told your kids no more cookies after dinner and you come downstairs and you see the crumbles all over the side of their face. Did you eat the cookie of which I told you not to eat? You're trying to elicit a confession. You're trying to elicit the tiniest degree of humility and brokenness. Right? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. But remember what Jacob had come to mean in his life. He's a schemer. He's a manipulator. He's the one that will grab you by the heels and trip you up and pull you down from behind. And Jacob is basically saying, my whole life I've been a liar. I had a really good friend. It's been many years ago. And uh, he's married. You know, he's Christian. But he, he had a pretty severe porn addiction. And it got to a point where his wife had separated from him and he was kind of digging his heels in like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. She's making too big of a deal of it. And, and at one point, me and another guy went to meet with him, trying to follow Matthew 18 to confront him. And at some point, we're like, you know, hey, I don't even remember the question we asked, to be honest. But I do remember, at some point, he breaks, he starts crying. He's like, man, my whole life I've been a liar. My whole life I've been a fraud. So, I mean, and a lot of times, that's what God's trying to get after. It's not just the one symptomatic sin that might be hurting you right now. It's the sin under the sin. It's the lie. It's the mask. 
It's the pattern. It's the strategy you've been living by. I was talking to another guy, this guy in, in full-time ministry, and, uh, and he's had one or two or three kind of failures in ministry. You know, like he tried to start a campus or something and it didn't work. And so part of what I've observed about this guy is now, he just always plays it safe. He's not going to risk anymore. He's not going to be bold anymore. It's kind of like, hey, I got burned. I, one or two or three times in my life, I really tried hard. I went out on faith, and it didn't have the results I wanted it to have. And so I'm a little hurt. I'm a little scared. And so now I'm just playing it safe. You understand the strategy there? What, what's he doing? He's hiding in this new strategy of just play it safe, never take a risk, never be bold, never launch out, never have courage. And in some sense, I was meeting with this guy recently, it's like, man, you're letting one or two or three past failures in your life define your whole life as a failure. And if you're in Christ, that's not the definition of your life. You've got to come out from underneath that. And in some sense, what God is saying to Jacob in this passage is, come out from under that false definition of you're just a schemer, you're a manipulator. I've got something better for you. I've got a calling on your life. Verse 28, he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You've been striving your whole life with man. You've really been striving with me behind the scenes. Now we've gotten face up and you've broken through. You've prevailed. You held on. You got the blessing. I mean, Jacob basically said, I, I want to be blessed by God so bad that if it kills me, it's worth it. And in some sense, that's when, that's when you're really praying. That's when you really have prevailing prayer is when you get to that level of desperation. Hey, God, I want to be right with you. I want to be close with you. I want to be intimate with you. I want to be blessed with you. And everything else has lost meaning. If I can't have you, then what do I want with all these other gifts? The secondary things never fulfill. So just a couple of thoughts by way of application, okay? In some sense, here's the real secret to life. Quit wasting our time on radically and desperately pursuing all these secondary blessings, which are good in and of themselves. It's not wrong to want wealth. It's not wrong to want a wife or a family or kids reputation. It's just wrong if you make those things number one. And spend the vast majority of your heart's energy on trying to be right with the Lord and blessed by Him and enjoying His face and His presence and His smile. And that has a radical way, when you get desperate of that, of fixing the horizontal things. And here's the thing. And even if the horizontal thing doesn't get fixed, there's a sense in which you're like, ah, I don't care that much anyway. Because <laughs> that's not my hope. That's not my joy. But what I want you to see is there is something really practical to it. Okay? Let's keep going. Verse 29. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked me my name? And he blessed him there. So he finally gets the blessing of God. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. At first he sounds like he's not changed. He's doing the same kind of thing 
thing, but hang on. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. See, Jacob has really changed. He's really had a breakthrough. He's not living by fear, manipulation, scheming anymore. He runs forward. He humbles himself. Right? He's not going forward to fight. He's going forward in utter humility, bowing down. And when he gets to Esau, Esau does embrace him. There's reconciliation. And guys, this is part of how lavishly generous God is. A lot of times he says, listen, if you'll just make me the number one thing in your life, I'll give you most of the secondary things you want anyway. Because they're not bad things in and of themselves. I'm happy to say yes to most of those prayers. I just want to make sure that the secondary blessings don't compete with your number one affection for me. And when we get that correct, it's a lot easier for God to start giving you the secondary things that you want because He trusts in a sense that you're not going to fall in love with them in a sinful way. So, in conclusion, Jacob's whole life had been a wrestling match, really with God behind the scenes, but with his dad, with his brother, with his wives, with Laban, and he was always trying to be this self-made man through his strength, through his scheming, through his ingenuity. I'll figure this out and I'll fix it. And what happens here at the end of the story, so to speak, he realizes huh, the way that you win is you win through weakness. You win through humility. You win through brokenness. You win through desperation. You win through a hard attitude that says, God, I want your face, your mercy, your blessing, even if it kills me. Even if I have to sacrifice all of the secondary blessings, your primary. And you get there and there's breakthrough. Now, just think about this with me. God came forth, right? I mean, it says that very clearly, that the man that he was wrestling with was God. And we know that God was all-powerful, right? I mean, he, ripped, he knocked his hip out of joint with just a touch. Why did God, in a sense, allow himself to be locked in this combat with Jacob? All night long. Because in this sinful fallen world, there's a very real sense in even the way that God wins his battles is through weakness. And this is a foreshadowing of the cross. That the greatest battle that God ever fought was to save our souls. And he didn't do it primarily through a show of strength. He did it through becoming a man, living a life of humility, going to the cross which John Calvin describes as a a wrestling match with sin and Satan. But in a sense, losing in his weakness, but through that weakness, winning when he rose again. And if we can see the greatest battle of all time and the greatest person of all time, even God himself, wrestling and winning through weakness, that ought to convince us, my soul got saved through an act of humility. Then I can say all my secondary battles win through weakness. Yes, do your part. But start in the place of prayer, end in the place of prayer. Pray for God's blessing, but mainly pray, hey God, whatever happens, I want to stay close to you. I want to stay right with you, whether you give me these secondary things or not. And that really is a solution to so many of life's battles. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took the wounds of wrath that we deserve on the cross.
so that now, though we do get wounded sometimes, it's, it's only ever the wounds of discipline from a loving Father. That even when you're hurting us, even when you're chastising us, even when you're taking things away from us that we think that we really want or need, even when you, it seems that you're saying no to our prayers, we can trust the depth of your character that all the ways of the Lord are right. Give us such humility. Give us such confidence. Give us the wisdom to do our part, but then never to trust in our part, but to trust in the finished work of Christ alone. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.